The scripture passage Pastor John will be preaching from this morning is found in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. Everything in that text is moving toward exulting in the hope of the glory of God. And that's my aim. This morning in my message, I want to so unfold these two verses that God willing and God enabling, we will all together exult in the hope of the glory of God. So let's bow and ask the Lord for help to achieve that aim together. Father, I am utterly dependent upon your spirit now because I know that I am dealing in spiritual things. The glory of God is a spiritual reality. It's not just a word, it's a reality. It is spiritually tasted and seen, and it happens when you work. And so I don't count on preparation, I don't count on voice or thought, I count on you. And I ask that you would open minds and hearts, and that you would make the dead live, the deaf hear, the blind see. I pray that I would speak the truth with affections that are fitting for the magnitude of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you see it there at the end of verse 2. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. Now, there are a lot of things in this room right now, in your mind, of which you are not sure You're not sure, perhaps, should I watch the game today or not? Should I eat this or go this place for lunch? Should I, later on in the week, uh, go to work here, go to work there? Should I keep this job or change jobs? Should I read this book or not read this book? Should I date this person or not date this person? Should I become a goer or, say, a sender? There's a hundred things in this room right now of which you are not quite sure. But there are some things that you don't have to have any doubt about at all. And one of them is this. It is God's will this morning that you exult in the hope of the glory of God. I say that without the slightest fear of any contradiction. The will of God for every person in this room is infallibly that you would exult in the hope of the glory of God. There's no question that that is God's will for you as revealed in Holy Scripture. Whatever else you do, whatever else you feel, whatever else you value, do this, feel this, value this, pursue this, exulting in the hope of the glory 
of God. Nothing is more important than this. Nothing is more paramount than this. And therefore, I have no doubt that I can pursue this as the aim of this sermon with the high expectation that I am perfectly in sync with the living God at this point. God's will is for you to exult in the hope of the glory of God. That's what He wants you to do now and for the rest of your life. Now, for that to happen, you have to see it or taste it. Taste and see. Taste and see. And when you see it, you hope in it. And when you hope in it, you exult over the hope that you have in it. But it starts with this spiritual perception or apprehension or seeing or tasting. You've got to see it. Now, where do you see it? Now, there is more than one answer to that question. But I'm going to give you one answer from one text. You see it in the story of Christ's perfect life, substitutionary death, and triumphant resurrection and ascension, His reign at the Father's right hand, and His coming on the clouds with all the angels of heaven. In that story of salvation and accomplished redemption, if you see it for what it is, shining out of it is the glory of God. Now, where do I get that idea? Besides the fact that I've seen it. How do I warrant it from Scripture? I would go to 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul says that streaming out of the gospel is this. Here are his words. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You hear what he says? The gospel of the glory of Christ. What's the gospel about in its essence? In its essence, the gospel of the life and death and resurrection of Christ is about the glory of Christ. It is called the gospel of the glory of Christ. And then you have this little phrase, who is the image of God, meaning the glory of God is seen in the glory of Christ as it shines out of the gospel. So when the gospel is, a, is truly told as a story, when the gospel is truly preached as a sermon or witnessed to in a track or heard on the radio, and the power of the Holy Spirit is there to open your heart, what you perceive in it is the glory of God drawing you up and out of itself to behold His beauty and to be won over by Him. And when you see it for what it really is, namely the greatest value in the universe, you put more hope in it than in anything else. You value it more than anything else. You cherish it, you treasure it, you delight in it, you love it more than anything else. Now, where do I get that? Listen to Romans eight eighteen. Nothing is more to be desired than the glory of God. Here's the way Paul puts it. Romans 8, verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed 
to us. You know what that means? It means there is no pain too great, there is no pain too long in this life that would not be worth it all if it brought us to the glory. That's how great the glory is. Or look at verse 21 in Romans 8. The creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The freedom of the glory of the children of God. Not only do the children of God one day see the glory, they are changed by the glory into the likeness of the glory. It begins now, we learn from first, Second Corinthians 3.17, from one degree of glory we are being changed as we behold the Lord. And then in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, we shall be changed. And we will not only see it, we will be glorified in it. So this glory of the Lord is our greatest possible Hope, And there is a great, great joy attending this hope of glory. Listen to the way Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 2, 7. We speak a wisdom, God's wisdom, which he predestined before the ages for our glory. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what has never entered up into the heart of man, God has prepared for those who love Him. You have never seen anything like what is coming your way in heaven. You have never heard anything like what is coming your way in heaven. It has never in your highest moments of imagination entered into your heart or mind what is coming to you in the day of the revelation of the glory of Christ. And there's another reason we know that. It's because Paul, who probably more than any other person, maybe Moses would be an exception, I'm not sure. I don't think so. Paul, more than any other person, knew this glory closer than anybody. Because he said, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 14 years ago, there was a man, he's talking about himself, who was, I know not whether in the body or out of the body, caught up into heaven and... I know not whether in the body or out of the body, heard things spoken which it is forbidden for a man to utter. There are glories that we are going to experience in heaven of God of which we've now tasted such a minor foretaste that they dare not even be spoken when Paul comes back to his full experience on earth. And I thought to myself when I read that yesterday again, why? Why not? I'd like to see that. And you know the verse that came to my mind? Don't cast pearls before swine. Now, I know that we are all, we Christians, 
redeemed, spirit indwelt, being sanctified people. But there are pearls, there are pearls of glory that are so glorious, so radiant with God that if there is any little bit of swinishness left in me, I better not see it now. And there is swinishness left in me. And so there's coming a day when in that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, all swinishness will be banished from John Piper's personality. And at that moment, the treasure chest can be opened. And my understanding of eternity is that I won't see it all at once, but that as much as I can handle will be granted to me day after day for an eternity of ever new revelations of the glory of God, forever new and fresh experiences of joy exulting in the glory of God. There will be no boredom in heaven. I used to fear heaven as a kid. Boredom. Sameness. Because even in my best theological moments, I thought, ah, we will know even as we are known in the twinkling of an eye. And I say, okay, then there's nothing new to learn, right? And if there's nothing new of God to see, then I've got it all and it's just there, static, forever. And that scared me. And now I realize I'm finite. God is infinite. A finite being requires an eternity to see and experience the fullness of an infinite being. There will be no end to newness flowing from God's glory. That's the meaning of infinite and the meaning of eternity. It never stops getting better. Blows your mind. Which is why we can't handle it all now. Our minds literally would explode. Paul said in... uh, Romans 9.23, that the goal of creation and judgment and salvation is to make known the riches of His glory upon the vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. You were made, Christian, to enjoy the glory of God. That's why you were created, to enjoy the ever-flowing, increasing revelation of the glory of God. Which is why Paul in that magnificent chapter 3 of Philippians said, I count all things as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Indeed, I count everything as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. What do you gain if you gain Christ and lose everything else? 
Well, in 2 Thessalonians 2.14, he says it like this. It was for this that Christ called you through our gospel, so that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you gain. You gain the glory of the maker of the universe and the redeemer of your souls. Now that just leaves this to talk about on exulting in the hope of the glory of God. If you've seen the glory in the gospel, if you know that it's a million, million times greater than what you have seen, and you've put your hope in it by faith, what does it mean to exult in that hope? What does that mean? I'm 53 years old. I lived through the Vietnam War. I almost was drafted. I did not go to Canada. It just didn't fall. But I went and got my physical and got my number. And I can remember some videos. I will never forget them. Near the end of the war, those of you who are old enough, maybe even others, have seen them. You can't watch these videos without tears unless you are really, really um, unemotional. It's near the end of the war. The POWs, no report, three years, five years, six years, and she was faithful. They were faithful. The children grew up. And then came the phone call. He's alive. He's on an aircraft carrier. It will dock in San Diego on such and such a date. We will pay your way. You get your ticket and be there. And the videos of these wives running across the deck of that aircraft carrier into the arms of a dead husband who is alive after six years and having him sweep her off her feet and put his arms around the little ones that he would never be able to recognize moves everybody to tears. But now, go back two weeks. The phone call rings. The phone rings. He's alive. Be in San Diego at the dock, 59 on such and such a date in two weeks. Nothing has changed in those two weeks. Nothing has changed except one thing. News. News. He was always alive. News. And the news produces hope. I'm going to touch him. I'm going to kiss him. I'm going to sleep beside him in two weeks. And he's going to sit at the breakfast table. And he's going to know his kids. And he's going to be there. 
And you don't need anybody to teach you about what exaltation means. Do you? You don't need anybody to teach you or show you or give you a list of things that you do in those two weeks to exult in hope. It changes everything. This one little thing changes everything. News, news, news. He's alive. In two weeks, you see the glory. And the exaltation will be in proportion to the longing and the love that we have for the glory of God. Do you love the glory of God? Oh, that God would open your eyes so that Jesus would not pronounce over you seeing they did not see and hearing they did not hear and perceiving they did not understand but their hearts were hardened. May it not be so for any of you. Everything else in this text is means to the end of exulting in the glory of God. There are five steps, three of them we've already seen. I'm just going to tell you what they are and then focus for a few minutes on two. Here's number one. They're all right here in these two verses. Number one step, the saving work of Jesus Christ. You see it there in verse one. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that phrase? Through, at the end of the verse. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Same thing at the beginning of verse 2. Through whom or through Him. These throughs mean Jesus Christ has come into the world as the Son of God. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled all righteousness. He died a death in our place. He rose triumphant over the grave to vindicate the perfection of His performance in life. He reigns at the Father's right hand. And this performance outside of us before we were ever born is the foundation of all our salvation and hope. That's the bottom step. Through Christ. Now what? Step two. By faith... Faith is the second step. You see it in verse 1 there in the little phrase, justified by faith. You see the phrase by faith there in verse 2 in the middle. Therefore, having been justified by faith, it is faith now that connects us in the 20th century with this first century divine penetration of history in the incarnation and the death and the resurrection of the Son of God, His ascension to the Father's right hand. How do we get connected with that great, glorious achievement that bore sins and accomplished righteousness? We get connected one way, alone, trust Faith, leaning on Him, savoring and being satisfied in Him alone. Faith. Here's step number three. It's called justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's the justification that is the third step. So first, Christ did something. Then we trust in it. Then we are justified. That is, we are pronounced not guilty. And the righteousness that was wrought out in the life of Jesus is credited to our account. And all our sins are put on Him. And He bears our guilt and we bear His righteousness. And there is therefore now no condemnation. That's justification. And all those three steps we've seen many times in recent weeks. So we don't need to linger over those this morning. 
There are two more steps in this text, and over these I want to linger for just a few minutes. Here's number four. We now have peace with God. And number five, we now have entered into a sphere of the power of grace that keeps us standing until we inherit the glory of God. Let me take those one at a time. Look at verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. That's step number four. We now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how are we to understand this peace? What's the meaning? We have peace with God. Billy Graham wrote a great book about that. Peace with God. Probably his best seller of all time. It's a great theme. A great, great theme. Peace with God. What does it mean? What kind of picture does Paul have in his mind? What kind of scene? And I get the answer to that question from verse 10. Just drop your eyes down eight verses to verse 10 of chapter 5 where it says... If while we were enemies, here's the scene he has in his mind, there, there's an enmity between God and us. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Now there's a reconciliation of enemies. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So the picture that clarifies for me what he means by peace is that he think, he's thinking in terms, there was once enmity between me and God. We know that. That's what this book has been about up until chapter 4, right? Romans 1.18 The wrath of God is being revealed against all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So right now, in the world today, the wrath of God is being poured out on the world. God is angry with sinners and his wrath is being poured out in death and poured out in all kinds of judgments and poured out in downward spirals in immorality in those three ways that we talked about the wrath of God is being poured out on the world God is angry with sinners and that is a terrifying thing I let myself linger over this a little bit yesterday just so I would feel it appropriately, because I don't think you will savor the grace we're going to talk about in a minute, unless this hits you. Go outside the city to the country where there aren't any streetlights, and look up on a clear night, and what you will see in the sky is about one forty millionth of the stars of our galaxy called the Milky Way, in which there are about 200 billion stars. This is a disk. It is 100 million light years across our galaxy, which means that it is 600,000 trillion miles across this galaxy. It's 2,000 light years thick. The sun is a little star in this galaxy rotating or revolving through it at about 150 miles a second and will finish its first orbit 
of the galaxy in 200 billion years. And there are at least, I am told, 50 billion more galaxies like that, at least. More likely, 100 billion galaxies like that. God spoke, and that came into being out of nothing. And it happened. That's the God who is angry at sinners. There is no worse situation to be in than to have infinite power of that magnitude against you and not for you. Down on Hiawatha Avenue, there's a sign facing south, which I see on the way back from the airport. These signs are all over the cities, black with white print. And on it, it says, I love you, I love you, I love you, God. And as Noel and I were coming back from our date on uh, Thursday, I looked at that and I thought, I said, I said to Noel, you know, I think that for the vast majority of people in this city, that is a totally misleading sign. Because I think it probably says to everybody who drives by, not because that's what it means, but because in our culture that's what it says, you're okay, I affirm you, I'm for you, I don't have any bad feelings for you, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to take care of you, I'm, I'm like the best granddaddy you ever had. I think that's the message probably that most people are hearing because they haven't got the first message, which makes the love of God intelligible. Namely, He is infinitely angry at the Twin Cities. God's wrath is uncalculable against the sin of this city and the people in it. So that the only hope we have is whether this God will make a way for us sinners who are in rebellion against him to be reconciled to him and his wrath toward us be removed from us. And verse 10 says, he made a way in the death of his son. We are reconciled to him by the death of his son. And therefore there's peace. And that's good news. The phone is ringing, folks. And the news is very, very good. One last thing. Peace with God is not the best news in the world. The best news is in verse 2. The power that once stood in the service of wrath... The power that created a hundred million galaxies. The power that once stood in the service of wrath now stands in the service 
of grace towards those who are in it. Verse 2 says, Through Him, through Christ also, and if you have an NIV, they've left out the word also. The word also unlocked the meaning of this text for me. I regret that for stylistic purposes, for some reason, I guess, they thought the Greek chi also shouldn't be included. But the word also is very important in this verse because it says, not only does peace with God come through Jesus Christ, but also something more, something different. But also, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we therefore now, because we stand in this grace, exult in the hope of the glory of God. So my fifth step, the fifth step after peace with God is we have entered through peace with God into a sphere, a power, a dominion, a reign of grace where we not only stand, but where we are kept standing by the nature of this grace, which is not merely a disposition in the mind of God, but a power in the hand of God. Now, where do I get that idea? Why do I give it that meaning? And the reason is because I see what is coming concerning grace in chapter 5. Look at verse 21, down a little ways in chapter 5. As sin reigned in death, even so grace will reign through righteousness to eternal life. Not anything short of eternal life. Grace will reign unto eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see what that means? Grace is a king, not a disposition. Grace reigns. Grace is power. Grace is dominion. Grace is authority. So when it says we have entered into a grace in which we stand, it's not like a field of lilies that wilt in due season. It's like a hurricane that you walk into that moves in power and keeps you standing. Go 14 verses farther into chapter 6 verse 14 and read it again. Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Sin isn't going to master you. Grace is going to master you. Grace is going to hold you. Grace is going to preserve you. Grace is going to keep you and nurture you and strengthen you and make you get to glory so that you can exult in the hope of glory. You will stand, not because you're so valiant, not because your willpower is so infallible, but you will stand because grace is the kind of thing that when you go into it, it keeps you standing. Now, where do I get that idea? Two places. One is in chapter 14 when I read verse 4. To every Christian he speaks. To his own master he stands or he falls. He stands or he falls. And stand he will. For the Lord is able to make him stand. If you stand at the last day, it will be for one reason, 
Christ stood by you and kept you standing in your weakest moments when everything about yourself was fall, fall, fall away. That's the meaning of grace. And there's one other place I want to direct your attention to and we'll be done. Right here in the context of chapter 5, remember back about three weeks, if you can, to to verse 16 of chapter 4. Do you remember the sermon, the faith, grace, certainty connection? Faith, grace, certainty connection. Let me read you the verse that it was based on, verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith, that is justification and the inheritance of the world, glory, is by faith. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it might be in accordance with grace so that... You see the connection? Faith connects with grace and grace is the ground of this next clause so that the promise will be guaranteed. What guarantees the promise? What guarantees that you're going to get the glory of God that you're supposed to exult in the hope of now? One answer, sovereign grace. That's the only thing that will get you there. So we've already seen this flow of thought in verses 16 and 17. Remember verse 17 when he described what kind of grace it was? The God who caused Isaac to be born was the God who raises the dead and brings out of that which is not that which is. This is sovereign grace. That's how you got born again. And when you walk through justification by faith and pass into the peace of God, you don't walk into some kind of small, ineffectual field of beauty. You walk into power. You walk into a reign. You walk into a dominion. You walk into the hands of the living God, which now are not hands of wrath anymore, but because of the death of Jesus, they are hands of grace. And all the power that built that universe is on your side. And He cannot let you fall. This is the new covenant I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts and they will not turn away from me. That's the meaning of grace. We have entered into grace. So let me sum it up with these six steps that I've tried to articulate. Just just walk through them from the bottom to the top and close by exulting in the hope of the glory of God. Step one, Jesus Christ performed his great atoning, redeeming, justifying foundation for us. Then second step, we believe it. We see the glory in it when the gospel is preached and the Holy Spirit quickens us and we believe it. We love it. We rest in it. And then, third step, we're justified. No condemnation. The guilt is gone. The righteousness is imputed. And the fourth step, peace. With this great God, peace. And then, step five, that God draws us all the way in to grace. And there we stand. And what we stand in is the omnipotent power of the Creator God whose strength 
is no longer in the service of his wrath, but the service of his grace. And therefore, step six, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, I've done all I can do. The rest is yours. Would you please open the eyes? Open the ears. Take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Carve calluses off the taste buds of the spiritual tongue. And give life and sight and savoring and justification and peace and grace and the exaltation of hope in the glory of God. Do it. Won't you stand with me? May the Lord uh, deliver your feet from the quicksand of unbelief and put you on the rock of Christ's finished work and grace. You're dismissed.